my name is Afshin Manashi, and I'm the director of the Farzaneh Family Center for Iranian and Persian Gulf Studies here at the University of Oklahoma. And on behalf of everyone here at the center and at the university, I'd like to welcome you to the OU Iranian Studies podcast. Uh, our primary goal with this podcast is to publicize the research that is being produced by Iranian Studies faculty here at the University of Oklahoma. We also hope to use the podcast to record conversations with visiting scholars who come to OU to give talks. We actually have a rather active visiting scholar program here at OU, and we'd like to give uh, both our local listeners here in Oklahoma and everyone else uh, around the world on the web uh, who might not be able to attend our on-campus talks, uh, give them a chance to hear from some of our visiting speakers. So that's also one of our goals with the, with the podcast. And since this is the first of what we hope to be uh, an occasional series of these brief conversations, we thought we'd begin by recording a conversation with one of our own Iranian Studies faculty here at the University of Oklahoma, Professor Manata Hashemi. Manata, welcome to the OU Iranian Studies podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting. It's my very first podcast. <laughs> it is for me, too. And this is so far so good. This is fun. Yeah. Uh, Manata has been at OU since, I think, 2015. Is that 2015, right? 2015. That's right. Uh, and she's my colleague here in the Department of International Area Studies. She received her undergraduate education at Cornell and her graduate training at Harvard and Berkeley. Uh, and your primary field is sociology. I guess your PhD was in sociology at Berkeley. That's right. My PhD was in sociology. I got my master's in Middle East studies from Harvard. Um, and you finished the PhD 2012 or 2012. That's okay. right. Yeah. And you've published widely in sociology sociology journals and in Middle East studies journals. You also have a forthcoming book coming out with uh, NYU Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we talk about the book, I'm, I'm wondering if you can say something about your your approach, your methodology to the to your work in general. Would you describe it as ethnographic? Yeah, I would. Um, to be more precise, I would say it's participant observation um, based on sort of looking at observable patterns in behavior and speech and thought and practice among people. Um, and I guess maybe I should say a little bit about what got me interested yes, in that'd ethnography. Be great. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I'm really interested in sort of big issue questions that sociologists are known for, class inequality and poverty. And um, I'm interested um, at looking at it within the context of the Middle East and more specifically for now, Iran. Um, <clears throat> when I was in my early years of grad school, I interned actually for an NGO. Mm-hmm in Iran focused on poverty alleviation. And I started to read up on the literature to see what was out there. And to my surprise, there wasn't, and this was, I would say it was in the mid, late 2000s, um, so around 2008, um, there wasn't that much written um, ethnographic studies on poverty mm-hmm. in Iran. There was a lot before the revolution. Right. Um, but the stuff that was coming out at that time was really focused on the elite and the upper classes, so not a lot of work um, on the lower classes. Of course, we have Asif Bayat's famous book, Street Politics, and Farhad Kazemi's book, Poverty and Revolution in Iran. But those were a little bit, um, they're focused on the years immediately after the revolution, right, right. not so much the time period that I was looking at. And so, you know, I wanted to really be part of that conversation, and that's what sort of... 
uh-huh. got me interested in the topic. Well, I mean, it, within the field of Iranian studies, that's one of the things that really makes your work kind of interesting, is ethnography has had a kind of ebb and flow within the field right. of Iranian studies. Yeah. And prior to the revolution, there was probably more ethnography than certainly in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, you know, the, you know, the Erica Friedel book uh, mm-hmm. and the Mary, Mary Hegland's work, was sort of the the place that you would start in thinking about ethnography. I think both of those were, the research was done mostly before the revolution, and it was sort of a rural focus. Exactly. It was mostly focused on rural populations. I mean, the other person that always comes to mind is Michael uh, uh, Fisher, Fisher, Fisher's book, which was sort of an ethnography of the ulama in the 70s, -hmm. really. Mm-hmm. And I remember that book came out, I guess, in the early 80s, but there was even a, an earlier kind of mimeographed uh, manuscript copy that had circulated around called the Qom Report mm-hmm. that I actually had seen a copy of even after the book was published, which is really interesting. interesting yeah. um, so that's kind of the early history of ethnography. Yeah. After the revolution, um, there was much less of that. Yeah, so, I mean, exactly. I think before the revolution, we got a lot of these fascinating ethnographies and sort of everyday life and what people were doing, and it was very detailed. And then after the revolution happened, um, starting around the early 2000s, we start to get ethnographies um, largely focused on, you know, the upper classes, the elite, um, particularly youth in the right. upper classes and the elite. Um, but, you know, there was always this tension between state and society, always pitting state mm-hmm. versus societies. So the idea was that, you know, we have this repressive, you know, Islamic state and we have these rebellious, resistant citizens who are trying to sort of um, make do given all these constraints that they have and trying to fight against the state and these authoritative power structures. Right. Um, and it really didn't, you know, I was at the time, you know, I, I left Iran when I was very young, but I kept going back every year and it didn't really jive with what I was seeing on the ground. It didn't really jive with some of my later graduate work. Um, and I really felt that, you know, it does a disservice to understanding Iranian society when you always talk in terms of binaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, one of the, the themes that you that you work with in your research <coughs> is class in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a broad sense. Uh, and in that sense, I think um, what your work does is approach it, the issue of class in a, in a different kind of way. Um, and you don't seem to be interested or focus so much on, you know, the traditional way in which we think of class, which is always in the context of class conflict or the politics of class or class as a a kind of disruption that transforms society as sort of the root of that process right. of transformation. Right. There's almost something more functionalist, I don't know if, if you would agree <laughs> with that, with uh, how you're approaching it, but looking at how class uh, actually, you know, the the gray zone of class, how mm. class can be accommodated <laughs> to kind of maintain a system. Yeah. Um, is that kind of maybe how you're thinking about class? I mean, I would sort of situate it, and I think you're you're spot on. I would add to that, um, I look at it as an issue of sort of class mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And sort of in traditional sociological studies of class and poverty, there's always this assumption that you can't say that somebody's sort of moved up unless they've sort of come out of their class of origin. <clears throat> Excuse me. They've escaped their boundaries of the class of origin. 
Um, so upward mobility doesn't occur unless you get a better job or you get a certain level of income, right? And it's these very objective indicators of socioeconomic standing, what we call SES. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> but, you know, in my work, and, you know, I coined this term incremental mobility in the book, um, I think we have to look, yeah, those objective markers, I guess, are important, but we also have to look at subjective perceptions, um, so it's looking at people's own perceptions of their station in life, notions of relative gratification. So yeah, maybe I'm still poor, but you know, this job that I have that may be a little bit stigmatized, that may um, not necessarily, you know, be considered uh, a middle class job. It's still giving me social connections. It's giving me a sense of self worth, and that's I think what's important to look at. Um, so looking at all of these small incremental socioeconomic gains that people make within poverty right, right. that helps them to sort of move up the ladder. And so that's sort of my conception of uh, mm -hmm. class mobility mm -hmm. within the book. Well, I think that relates to one of the, I think, central uh, terms that you use in the book is this <laughs> idea of resistance versus conformity. Mm -hmm. uh, can you say something about that? I mean, this kind of comes out of the discussion sure. of class, right? Sure. Um, yeah. So the idea, I mean, within the social sciences is that, you know, if you're poor, if especially if you're a poor young person, um, it sort of goes back to James Scott's uh, everyday forms of peasant resistance. But if you're poor, um, you're basically engaged in everyday resistances to sort of regain your dignity or reclaim your status. Um, and there's this idea that and this sort of is carried over into Iranian studies. And there's this idea that these youth in Iran are resisting and rebelling, right. um, trying to regain the status that these authoritative power structures, whether it be the state or the family, they've sort of taken away from them. And, you know, yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. There are some youth who are resisting, and I would argue that mostly these youth are from the elite who have the resources and the wherewithal to do it. Um, but I also think that we have to look at conformity how some people, and in the context of this book, young people uh, try to conform to social norms in order to regain dignity mm -hmm. and claim status and move up the ladder. Um, so, yeah, in this book, I really look at the ways that people conform mm -hmm. in order to become agents of change, ironically. So, yeah, your, your ethnography or your fieldwork was actually among urban poor young yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... So that, that's interesting. I mean, it kind of relates also to this um, this term that we're all familiar with in you know the culture of Iran, which is aberu, mm -hmm. uh, or just the concept of face saving or saving face. Uh, and you've kind of turned it into a sociological phenomenon, which I, I found one of the really interesting things in the manuscript. Uh, Iranians may have a kind of intuitive understanding of what aberu means. Uh, but what's interesting is that it can also be analyzed or interpreted w within sociological theory, which is kind of what you've done here. Uh, can you maybe explain what Abaru is yeah, <laughs> and, sure. and and how it relates to the sociology of uh, you know saving face, as, sure. maybe, as we would say in English? So it's going to be a long-winded answer. Um, <laughs> So Abru, literal definition is water of the face, right? Abru. A rosy cheek, Exactly. Um, so in Iranian sort of thought, uh, you have this veil of water that's covering your face, right? And once this veil of water is lifted, that's it. 
Uh-huh, um, right. That's basically that veil of water is like your the stronghold of your character. And once you lose that veil of water, you've lost everything. You might as well be dead, in a sense. Um, so that's the absolute poverty is when you don't have that albru. Um, and I define albru just you know shorthand way as face. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's hard to keep saying water of the face, so it's uh, so it's called face uh, in the book, and for me, I mean, a central element of uh, conformity, abiding by social norms, is saving face. Is um, you know others' perceptions of your moral worth, um, and so I argue in the book that the better able you are to save face, to protect that veil of water that's on your face. Um, the more morally good you're judged by those in your community, um, the more moral capital, to put it sociologically, you acquire, right? right? And this moral capital is a form of symbolic capital. It can be traded in, it can be exchanged. And what I saw when I was doing the ethnography was that these youth exchanged that moral capital, not you know, literally exchanged, but you know, in a figurative sense, um, they exchanged that moral capital for social and economic capital or for the possibility of social and economic rewards, right? So the better off, um, the more morally good you're judged, um, the more likely you are to gain a, a more decent job, the more likely you are to maybe gain a promotion, the more likely you are to gain social capital, social networks, or tangible resources. So in this sense, conformity not only allows you to gain dignity, right, in this very abstract sense of the term, but it also gives you these more tangible rewards that actually can help you later on in life, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So these incremental gains can add up over time Mm -hmm. to something bigger, that can ultimately yield a sense of status, yield a sense of self-worth to people who we normally think of as being sort of on the very bottom of the social hierarchy. I mean, when when I was reading the manuscript and sort of reading the the parts where you kind of of conceptualize these ideas, Mm -hmm. I mean, you can almost kind of um, intuitively understand it. And obviously in your ethnography, you actually sort of saw it and kind of put it into a system. But it also reminded me of, you know, Asghar Farhadi's films, yeah. <laughs> like The Separation, which yeah. also kind of, you know, delves into the kind of moral ambiguities of status mm-hmm. and rank and identity and dignity and all of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously in film, and maybe in some ways film has sort of become a substitute for ethnography to some degree in Iranian uh, studies it or has, Iranian for culture. Sure, yeah. But in his films, all of these same uh, issues that you're describing are presented as drama. Mm-hmm. But what you're doing, it you're kind of turning it into a sociology or an ethnography. Uh, the other part of that in the manuscript that you, you kind of take it to the next level, actually, where you actually describe the, the there's four rules right. in which this whole system operates. Right. You the know, four so, rules, the yeah, face the, rules. The four rules of yeah. saving face. I mean, that's it. That's kind of the uh, the system that you've yeah. kind of devised in all of this. Maybe you can give us a, sure. a short description of that. Sure. Oh, I love the rules. So, <laughs> so just to make it easier in the book, um, I talk about the system as a game. So I to call it the face game, and I term the rules the face rules. Um, and so for every game, there's a winner, right? And there's a loser. 
Um, so these feast rules are the rules that you have to abide by, the social norms that you have to abide by in order to win the game. And you begin <laughs> those social and economic rewards, right? Um, and the four rules are sort of being seen as a hard worker, being seen as financially responsible, being seen as morally pure, and uh, being seen as sort of with it, fashionable, in the know, in a way. And I emphasize being seen because... It's always the performative display of these norms that's important, right? So what you do in the backstage, to quote Irving Goffman, um, what you do behind closed doors, that's not important for your face, right? It's what you do outside in the public that's, um, that's really sort of becomes a hallmark of your identity in this case. Um, and so for these youth, by following these four rules, at least publicly, um, they're able to sort of move ahead in life. And I wanted to emphasize there's this idea that we have in Iranian studies especially, there's always this dichotomy, this tension between the zahir and the batin, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> the external and the internal. And I actually, what I saw in my field work was that there's no tension. These youth actually believe that this game, that playing this mm. game is the morally correct way to live. And that's what's made this game so sustainable, is that because they believe that, yeah, you know, you might not necessarily... Uh, follow these rules in the privacy of our own, own homes, but we should, right? right? Because right. that that's the right way to be and act. Mm-hmm. So I also call into question. No, and I'm not. I'm not the only one. But uh, Fariba Adil Khal has also uh-huh. done this in her in her excellent analysis of state and society in Iran. But um, just the being modern in Iran. Book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That you know, there's we, we really need to step away from these dichotomies. We need to look at those gray zones, those overlaps, Absolutely. where people, you know, where these social norms that we think are sort of imposed on people by the state or by communities or by families, actually they're internalized by people, and people want to follow them, want to do them in order to, because they think that that's the way that you have the good life, right? Right. And I put good good life in quotations because you know everyone's perceptions of the good life is different, but yeah. Well. I mean, for obviously this book, it's not a, a book about politics. It's not no. a, you know, you're a sociologist and you're not interested in the politics of contemporary Iran. Uh, but for those of us who are you know, interested in understanding contemporary Iran, whether it's in sociological, ethnographic or otherwise, um, the evolution of Iran's social, cultural, political system is ultimately rooted in some of these things that you're describing. So I'm wondering if you have any sense of and maybe you've touched on this already a little bit, but how do you think your research contributes to these these other kinds of discussions? Yeah, so, I mean, after the Iran-Iraq war, um, the Iranian regime really embarked on this intense sort of developmental drive, this developmental push, to quote Kayvon Harris, um, where it tried to modernize Iranian society um, it expanded education to all sectors of society. Um, it instituted cultural houses, cultural activities, um, social welfare programs. And what all of this did was it ended up raising the aspirations of people. It normalized aspirations across classes. So um, we sort of see this in bourgeoisie mont right. um, of Iranian society beyond the middle classes, where people in the lower classes... so the people that I interviewed also want the same resources and accoutrements that people in the middle classes or even the elite have. And 
um, I think what my research shows is that state has been successful. Um, it's actually, it's worked. The developmental project has worked. People's aspirations are raised. And it's not an issue of, oh, look, you know, their aspirations are raised and yet they don't have any way of achieving them. No. Right. Even today, um, in spite of all these sanctions that are happening, in spite of all the turmoil, people are coming up with really creative individualistic solutions that are aligned with sort of social community norms in order to make those aspirations a reality. They mm -hmm. might not, they might modify their aspirations, right? Right. Um, but they're still, they haven't given up, basically. Right. They're engaged in this sort of creative uh, struggle yeah. to not not just make ends meet, but live a life of dignity, right. improve their lives. And I think that's what a lot of um, ethnographies miss is that well, people are just making and making do right. with with Iran. You know, Iran's this horrible place. You know, why? Right. You know, it has to be because it's an Islamic republic. Right. Um, people are just trying to just like make do, and I, that's not. I, I would say that's the wrong perception to have. I think people there are people who actually enjoy living in Iran. People who believe in the value of that, you know, of the Islamic regime, and are trying to um, improve their lives. Mm -hmm within that system. I mean, and I think you're right. And it definitely goes to show how you know, resilient and dynamic and creative and mm -hmm. complex Iran is. Yeah. Uh, that uh, all of these things that you're describing, I think people who do travel back and forth to Iran, they can kind of feel it in some yeah. way. But I think what you've described here and sort of systematized really captures uh, a lot of that. Um, so all of this is really fascinating, and all of this is in the book. When is the book going to be published? The book, inshallah, is coming <laughs> out spring 2020. Um, okay. It's tentatively titled. It's a working title. It's called The Face Savers, Morality and Mobility in Iran. Um, it's coming out with NYU. Great. So yeah. that's probably a little more than a year. To, uh, we're recording this in February 2019, but so spring of 2020. Spring 2020. It yep. will be out in the in the world. And yes. we all, uh, <laughs> I've already read some of the manuscript, and uh, I, can, I definitely endorse it and give my recommendation. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank you. But uh, thank you uh, again, then, for uh, joining us on, on our you. inaugural podcast. Thank you for having me, Afshin. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Uh, yeah, well, our hope is, our hope is to continue uh, this tradition and to record more of these conversations with uh, both OU Iranian Studies faculty as well as visiting speakers who make their way to Norman, Oklahoma, uh, for campus talks, and we'll, we'll try to record some of these uh, podcast conversations with them as well. So thank you all for listening. Until next time, thank you. Bye.